0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to our podcast on New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Steven Siegel, and I'm delighted today to have on the show Carl Qualls. Carl is the Professor of History and the John B. Parsons Chair in Liberal Arts and Sciences at Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. We'll be talking about his new book today, which is called Stalin's Niños, Educating Spanish Civil War Refugee Children in the Soviet Union, 1937 to 1951, just out with the University of Toronto Press 2020. Carl, welcome to our podcast today.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate it.
0: So, uh, Professor Qualls has a wide variety of teaching interests. These include Russian and German history, the Holocaust, interwar Europe, dictators, urban history, refugee history, and much more. His first book was From Ruins to Reconstruction Urban Identity in Soviet Sevastopol After World War II, published by Cornell University Press in 2009. And his book, The first one challenged notions of totalitarianism, investigated historical myths, and outlined the role of monuments and urban space and identity formation in a city torn between Ukraine and Russia. This book, Stalin's Ninos, examines the fate of refugee children in the Spanish Civil War who were raised in the Soviet Union, the special boarding schools designed for them, and the educational methods used to develop the children into hispano Soviets. I think that's a very interesting category. So let me start, uh, Carl, with the first question. Could you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you came personally, intellectually, professionally to this topic?
1: Um, Well, this topic was a complete mistake, I have to say. It was complete (laughs) serendipity. Uh, Way back in uh, the middle of 1990s, in 1995, I was making my first foray into the Russian archives looking for a dissertation topic, uh, which ended up becoming my first book. I was waiting one day, as we do, in archives for some materials to be delivered, um, and I decided I'd just flip through the card catalog to see what else was was being held. This is the uh, the smaller of the two state archives of the Russian Federation on uh, Bereshkovsky and now in Moscow. And so I'm looking through, and I came across this card that said in Russian... Um, Spanish schools, and I was completely, um, bewildered by why there would be Spanish schools for Spanish children and youth. And so I ordered up a couple, uh, folders just to see what was there. And, um, I was intrigued about the possibility of this work. And again, this was what, 25 years ago at this point. Um, every time I would go back to Moscow, I would look and see if anybody was, uh, working in the files, um, they weren't, which was great for me, but also sad at the same time. And so I would periodically just do a bibliographic search, see if anybody had been writing on this. And I stumbled upon uh, a number of Spanish scholars that were writing about these children in the Soviet Union, but it was being done almost entirely from uh, oral histories and some of the Spanish archives. Um, none of them at that point, uh, early on, seemed to know Russian or the Russian context, Soviet context. And so when I was finishing up um, from Ruins to Reconstruction, I decided, let's go back, uh, see what's been done, see what's been used. And to my uh, great joy and astonishment, there really hadn't been any good work that did a deep dive into the Russian sources and try to contextualize uh, how and why these children were being raised in these boarding schools in the way that they were.
0: So why children, Carl? What is the interesting aspect for you as a historian about the history of youth and children?
1: So, um, I like to do things that are, uh, different that haven't been done much. Um, when I started my book on Sevastopol, there hadn't been really uh, much at all written on the post-war period, certainly nothing about, um, urban reconstruction and very little urban history. So I trained myself as an oral historian, uh, excuse me, urban historian, um, for this one, the history of childhood was only really beginning to get started in, in uh, Russian and Soviet history. We'd had certainly some good um, histories of education, uh, Larry Holmes and Tom Ewing kind of being the, the, the top uh, of those, in my opinion. But really not much in, in uh, child, history of childhood and children's history. Uh, so I was intrigued by the possibilities. Um, I had two children of my own. At that point, by the time I started doing this research, both of them were also learning Spanish. So it was time for dad to teach himself Spanish as well. (laughs) So it's kind of a confluence of things, kind of an intellectual curiosity, uh, wanting to do something different to to test my limits, but also a way to kind of connect with uh, me as a father and an educator at the same time.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned that there is a gap in uh, scholarship by Spanish uh, historians Why do you think that was? Were they just not doing research in the Soviet archives or what is the nature of that scholarship?
1: Um, I think it's uh, it's of two types. One there for the, the earlier scholars, there wasn't an understanding of the language. Um, Ima Kolomina um, is probably the one really good source where she begins to learn Russian and get into the archives a little bit. But before that, uh, they seem to be going through translators primarily and not doing much archival work at all. And I think also the, the abundance of, of oral history subjects that they had um, there was a lot to be done and they did it really, really well. And so I think they were, um, they were adding a layer to that history that needed to be added. Uh, but for me, I'm, I'm reading those oral histories and they're absolutely fascinating. Tell us a lot about the the memories of their time in the Soviet Union but they're starting to be collected almost a half century after the fact. And having done some oral histories in my first book, um, I'm, I'm leery of that, that distance, not that people will consciously be deceiving, uh, me as the, as a historian, but just because they have, they've told the story so many times, they've heard other people's stories and just time, um, the, the, the kind of prosaic and the everyday experiences seem to be lost. And it's the really uh, tragic, traumatic, but also joyful moments that are told and remembered. So I yeah. wanted to get in and kind of fill that gap with the prosaic. But also as a as a Soviet historian, um, they can't tell me the intentions of what the Soviet regime and the teachers were. And so that's why I wanted to embed myself more in the Russian archival sources.
0: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I know this um, in my own experience from working through the history of the Holocaust and dealing a lot with the Holocaust Memorial Museum and oral testimonies, that after, after a while, the story gets rehearsed and told so many times, and there's a narrative form, and it, it has a beginning, middle, and end, even though people want to deny that there is a story there sometimes. Um so, you know, you do have to listen very carefully to, to the voices and pay attention to the oral history, but you also need to come up with some larger context. And I think you do that really well in the story you tell. So that's my next question. What, what is the story and structure of your book? How did, how did you decide to arrange this Soviet internationalist project with all of the civilizing missions going in different, different directions?
1: Yeah, the structure was something that was really difficult to come up with. And actually, when I sent it to my my editor, who's sending it out to the readers, I said, please ask the readers if these chapters are in the right order, because uh, I don't think they are. <laughs> and fortunately, both readers uh, came back and said, you're right, they're not in the right order. <laughs> um, so I wanted to tell something that had a, a narrative arc from their flight from Spain to their experience in the Soviet Union and for some of them the return to Spain. And so there is a chronological story there, but I had to pause in the middle because the the sources, the archives that 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 are at the center of this. I mean, there's several archives, but the key one is the the files of the boarding schools themselves. And so the the education um, for me was was a central part of the story because. If we think about how we grew up and who we become, who we are, and the identities that we we that we hold dear, they come from a few sources. They come from family, maybe a faith tradition, and from our upbringing and schooling. And these children don't have families with them. Most of them still do have families back in Spain. Um, they don't have a faith tradition because they're in the Soviet Union, um, at least not right. the one that they're able to, to practice openly. Um, and so the boarding schools become all of those. And so the way I, I, I set up the, the the book is that I start with the chapter of them fleeing from Spain and arriving in the Soviet Union. Um, then I talk about the structure of the boarding schools, who's there, uh, the, 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 the role modeling that's really important uh, by the adults, both the Spanish and the Soviet adults are there. And then I pause for uh, two chapters. I talk about classroom education, so the kind of reading, writing, arithmetic. Um, and how this is trying to instill a number of uh, values, particularly patriotism, for both countries. Uh, the chapter that follows that is on vaspatania, which isn't isn't really translatable really clearly into English, but it's something like child rearing. And so this is where it's talking about um, training them in ways of thought, of behaviors, personal conduct, uh, all those kind of things. And then I yeah. re into a into a chronology again, talking about the brutality of their experience during the Second World War. And then the last chapter before the epilogue is their transition into adulthood.
0: Yeah. And for our readers, there are six chapters and and actually I do think that they follow. It's really hard to structure a chronological order. Yeah. But I know at the very least that you have a beginning, middle, and end. The beginning mm-hmm. is the Spanish Civil War. The middle, I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is probably the Great Patriotic War, World War II, definitely. And then the end, or you know, mid mid range to the end, is the transition to adulthood. And I would actually like to come back to questions about Vosvitanya and um, how they are no longer children. So what what happens after they? Move out of this journey from hell in Spain, if you will, to paradise in the Soviet Union, and, and then and then beyond that. Um, so they were also refugees. These children, and what is the context of the Spanish Civil War? How, I mean, most of our listeners, I think, will be familiar with the Spanish Civil War, but how does it factor into your story? And then how does it impact the lives of these children? How many of them? in different ways through your, through your book.
1: Yeah. So um, they are refugees because um, the vast majority of them, all except for a couple dozen um, leave just after uh, Guernica is bombed by the German Luftwaffe. And so of course this is, uh, Guernica has no military value, whatever it's a a Bosque market town. Uh, It's very much a cultural symbol of Bosque identity. And so this was, this was an attack on a civilian population, a war crime, if you will. Uh, following this, um, a lot of families and organizations begin to fear for their lives and quite rightly, because you have the Germans, the Italians on the, on the Southern coast. And of course the, uh, the nationalists who are beginning to push into, uh, into Northern Spain. And so the vast majority of the, the refugee children going to, um, the Soviet Union and other countries are Basque and Asturian, right? And we have to remember that Francisco Franco was known already as the butcher of Asturias for putting down a, a, a minor strike in Asturias um, already. So it was it was um, a fear for life, right? And this is what most refugees, uh, why they flee, is because they fear for their lives. And so, in some cases, uh, nearly entire schools were being sent abroad. Sometimes it was individual families, but overwhelmingly, not exclusively, uh, these children are very poor children, working class children, and working class children from the, from the left. Um, they're supposed to have their bonafides, you know, at their their parents, uh, sometimes card carrying members of some leftist party of which there are many, many in in Spain, um, or at least sympathetic to it. Right? There can there can be no uh, no Francoist uh, forces. Uh, getting on these boats, um, and so this is uh, the the hell that that 11 year old Juan Rodriguez, excuse me, um, is writing back to his parents. He says, you know, it's like reaching paradise after being in hell. The hell is fearing for your life. They're seeing. Right. Um, family members being killed. They're seeing their their villages, towns, and cities being bombed. Uh, they're living underground in shelters day after day after day. They don't have food to eat. Their schools have been closed. There's, there's nothing like a normal childhood left. And so leaving, even as heartbreaking as it is for many of the children and the parents, um, it is a matter of survival. And they are, in a way, able to have something like a childhood when they get beyond the borders of Spain.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned the reports, and I think if you can elaborate on some of those that you've found uh, in a Spanish context or in the Soviet archives, I'm intrigued by how um, quickly it seems um, there are logistical institutions, those sorts of things. I mean, the children are very malnourished. They have all kinds of communicable diseases and during the war, the climate makes them worse. So there's tuberculosis and other things. Um, could you talk about that? So, I mean, there is, in addition to school care, sanatorial care, hospital care for a lot of the children. Do you think that was done well when they arrived for the for Stalin's niños? Um, I think it was done as well as could be expected. Um, we
1: have to remember that, that two of these... Um, boatloads of children are over a thousand apiece. One is almost 1,500 children. And so just imagine that many children, as you mentioned, malnourished with all kinds of diseases, uh, typhus TB being uh, most most prevalent, all arriving on your shores at one time. And so um, we see some uh, very quick prophylactic measures Right. Again, you know, we both share the, the teaching of the Holocaust. Um, some of those s- similar prophylactic measures you see anytime you're you're grouping lots of people together. So right. uh, delousing, lousing uh, shaving of heads, which is absolutely traumatic for a lot of the girls in particular, um, burning their clothes and giving them uniforms. Uh, some of the children loved it. The wealthier of the children like, no, I want my fancy clothes back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Dumping, dumping the luggage into into the water. Um, so, trying to keep out any infections, and as, as we know, I mean the, the work of Peter Gutrall and others, right? That um, the 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 notion of people moving beyond borders from one border to another, it's that fear of disease that that follows people, and so the Soviet authorities uh, have that fear of disease, but also I think a very humanitarian outlook too, because they want to quickly diagnose who has what and particularly the children with TBs are sent down to the South, to Crimea and Ephraim in particular, there is a resort there where they can um, have drier air. Um, You have uh, a much higher, um, uh, much greater accessibility to fresh fruits and vegetables. And so they are there sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months, sometimes for years for some of these kids trying to uh, recuperate, gain their strength, Um, gain their health back so that they can begin to have something like a normal childhood again. So I think it's about as good as you can get as far as the the healthcare uh, goes uh, initially. But I think also is they did a fantastic job of kind of bringing people out to the docks as these children were were coming on shore just to show the embrace of the population. So this was both adults, but also uh, pioneer troops in particular with uh, musical bands, uh, flowers, food, cheering for these children, mm. budding them up with other Soviet children, and trying to make them feel as welcome as possible because these kids were traumatized, and so to 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 create those bonds very quickly, especially child to child bonds, was um, incredibly important. Now, it's not clear from the sources. Whether that is the intention. Let's surround them with love so they no longer feel traumatized as soon as they get off the ship. Uh, But that's certainly how it's interpreted by a lot of these Spanish children.
0: Yeah. And I'm very struck by your careful reading of the sources from the Soviet angle. So I want to turn to that now after their arrival. Um, There are gaps, of course, in the Soviet sources about, as you say, the role of auxiliaries, people who are help, helping out. Um, you also argue, I think throughout the first couple of chapters that there is a very serious burden placed on educators. Um, and you know I think in some ways, and we can talk about this, this is a, this is part of the Soviet education system, even under Stalin, that there has to be a sort of mandate for these educators to step well outside of the, the classroom and, and give a kind of full body and mind, vospitania, child-rearing training. So could could you explain that a little bit then in the Soviet context after the arrival, what the sources are indicating and, and how, how you're reading the story of education? Sure. So... Um... So as soon as
1: the children arrived and they have their medical checks and all that kind of stuff, uh, they're temporarily temporarily housed um, and they're astounded. They're put up in the Hotel October in Leningrad and the Metropole in Moscow, to very high end uh, hotels, highly polished floors that the little boys use as skating rinks and all the kind of stuff and all the mischief they're getting up to. Uh, and then they're sent out, um, oftentimes grouped by age to uh, boarding schools throughout the Western Soviet Union in the Russian Federation and Ukrainian Federation. Um, the younger children are generally housed in uh, larger buildings, estates out in the countryside, in the woods, near rivers, river. So they have kind of that natural surrounding. Uh, the older, older older children generally are in a capital city like Leningrad, Moscow, uh, Kiev. The personnel in the house is a blend of Spanish and Soviet, and there are really two types of educators: there are the classroom educators, and then there are the vaspatanis. Uh, so they the the people that basically take care of the children uh, in the dormitories on the school grounds, but don't have the the mandate of classroom education. The there is a lot of tension. Between uh, Soviets and Spaniards. Uh, The Soviets are, they've been brought up, you know, this is the late 1930s when these children are arriving, 37 and 38. So they've gone through the training process. They've been vetted as good Soviet citizens who can be trusted to role model appropriate uh, Soviet behaviors and ways of thought. Uh, The Spaniards, less so. Some of the, the Spaniards have pedagogical training and are excellent Uh, teachers in the classroom. A lot of the uh, caregivers outside of the classroom are um, very young women, um, late teens, early 20s, have no pedagogical experience. They're seamstresses and char women and things like that. And so there is a lot of um, suspicion, uh, I think, towards the Spaniards, and particularly after 1939, when a lot more Spanish adults come the Spanish right. Civil War has has ended at that point, and so they have to flee Spain. Um, and there is a there is a purging of some of the the Spanish uh, personnel, purging with a small P, not you know the Great Terror of executions, but kicking them out of the out of the houses. So this idea of um, education and you know literacy and numeracy is really important, but the idea of having them surrounded by people who could teach them what it means to be Soviet, right? So that comradely, comradely behavior, uh, collective action, collective responsibility, uh, artistic and aesthetic sensibilities, um, certainly secularism, Marxism, Leninism, uh, internationalism, kind of all of these things, they they don't want to leave it to chance, right? Because the boarding school... In the Soviet mindset, if you're if you're trying to transform youth, right, which is what all schools are about, transforming youth, mm. um, having a having another locus of authority is very problematic, right? So in the Soviet sense, for regular Soviet children, it's going back to mom and dad or babushka in the apartment, and babushka is telling you about God and all these things, right? It's undoing a lot of the schooling. The boarding school is ideal because you don't have the family there. You don't have babushka there. It's a more controlled environment. And so once they can they can um, ease some of the Spanish personnel out of the scene, they have a, uh, a population of personnel that they can trust more to do what the state is wanting them to do.
0: And I, I think what the state wants them to do is Dictated in many ways by the values that they expect from the teachers, so sacrifice and fortitude are val- values of the best Soviet citizen. And in in a context and atmosphere milieu, closed space, even carceral space of suspicion during the purges, I think those values become really important, right? Absolutely,
1: yeah, and they, and they see uh, the children see right because. Again, they're coming in the, in the midst of the terror and they, they see that going around them. Some of their, their teachers disappearing because it's not just uh, Spaniards and Soviets in there. There's Hungarians and Germans, kind of the, if you will, the communist diaspora um, is all there because the, the common turn is, is in Moscow. So there are, there are a lot of international educators and caregivers and some of them start disappearing from the home and the children, um, it's not clear at the time if they were connecting the dots that this was part of what they're seeing in the, in the press about these spies and enemies of the people or in the, the memoirs and the oral histories later, if they went back after the fact and connected the dots and said, ah, this is why teacher X uh, was no longer there. He was obviously a a victim of the, of the great terror. So yeah, it's it's absolutely important to, to um, make sure that those values are being inculcated and not having any contradictory values being whispered to the children.
0: And how are the Spanish children's cultural differences recognized? Is this affirmative action? Is this the formation of poster children? Um, Is this liberal education? I I know you're teaching in many ways at a liberal arts university. So is this this surveillance? Is it incarceration? I, I mean, how do you kind of gauge the gray areas of that?
1: Uh, I think it's all of those except maybe incarceration. Um, even though they are, you know, confined in a sense to these boarding schools. Um, it is surveillance, um, children surveilling each other, adults surveilling, uh, the children. Um, but it's, it's not a surveillance for punishment. It's a surveillance for, uh, trying to understand where the children are coming from, what they're thinking. So those can be corrected, corrected in the classroom, corrected outside of the, the classroom by these role models that they're supposed to be surrounded with. Right. Something that comes up a lot in the oral histories is the number of children who recognize themselves as savages. And that's the word they use savages before they come to the Soviet Union. So, um, I'm trying to connect a whole bunch of things here, so part of this uh transformation is an intellectual transformation, but a lot of it is behavioral right they um especially the That's kids from yeah, some of kids from smaller villages don't have notions of hygiene, certainly not the notions of hygiene that are trying to be taught in the Soviet Union and if you have four hundred children in one boarding school and no hygiene, you're going to be spreading disease like wildfire. So it's the, how do you wash yourself? How do you wash your linens? How do you wash your sleeping quarters? And everybody needs to pitch in and do their job. It's kind of a very much COVID-19 <laughs> uh, kind right, of uh, right. ideas. Like everybody has to do their bit. And so that's why they're surveilling the, the children is for some of those, those daily behaviors that we know started in the revolution, right? Is that there's a Soviet way to live. And so um, some of this is, the Soviets understanding of who the Spaniards are. And that's a a, a very stereotypical and not very um, 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 culturally sensitive one, right? They're, they're undereducated. They're, um, they're the beasts and savages. They're unclean. They're, uh, they're, they're Latin, right? They have hot blood. They're passionate and it's trying to, to um, remold those characters into something that is Soviet, something that is, that is careful, camaraderie, camaraderie, uh, hygienic, so that they can uh, eventually then integrate into uh, Soviet society, particularly after 39, right? Before 1939, you know, 37 39 to 39, it looks like they're educating the children, um, simply trying to maintain their their Spanishness, right? So they can quickly go back to Spain once Franco is defeated. Once Franco wins and World War II breaks out in 39, all of a sudden they say, wait a minute, we have to begin to prepare these children for long-term residency in the Soviet Union. Therefore, they have to learn how we think, how we behave, what we believe in, what we read and watch, all of those kind of things. So the boarding schools are, you know, something of a liminal space, right? The third space that Homi Baba talks about, where you're neither this nor that, you're not fish or fowl or you're you're both and. You're both Soviet and Spanish. And so some parts of Spanish culture are actually embraced. Uh, Language from day one. Spanish language is truly important. This is very consistent with what are called the non-Russian schools in the Soviet Union. You teach Russian as a second language. Everything Mm. else is done to the primary language. Now, this is hard because there's not a... a, 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 a broad, um, culture of, um, Spanish learning in the Soviet Union. So some of their, some of their initial teachers are Argentinian. Um, there are Soviet, uh, translators who maybe were at MGAU studying French. And so all of a sudden they become Spanish translators somehow.
0: Um,
1: But Spanish language is really important. During uh, festivals and things like that, we see um, students doing traditional dance, traditional music, dressing up in traditional costume. But it's what I find is really interesting, and I try to play with a little bit in the book. Is what does Spanish actually mean when these children, the vast majority of them, are actually Basque? Because mm. Basque, right? Yes. You you know Hungarian, right? It's it's kind of. Yes. This thing that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, right, or very few places, right?
0: Not, Actually, not in the world of Slavic studies, right,
1: exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right? These, there's these strange Finno-Ugric languages. Bosque right. is even stranger because it's not related to anything, and yeah. yet they're they're allowed to to you know wear the beret, right, <laughs> and things like that. But they're not at least in the in the archival sources, they're very rarely differentiated as uh, from Catalan or from, um, or Catalonia or from Asturias or from Pais Vasco, the, the, the Basque lands, um, all the, all those can be celebrated, those kind of national cultures, but hispanidad, Spanishness is what we're aiming for. And so I equate that to what the Soviets are doing or what Fran Hirsch talks about in a, in a different sense of double assimilation is, um, you can be Uzbek, you can be Ukrainian, but you can also be Soviet at the same thing, right? There's Spanishness is the supra national, but we're gonna allow the flowering of the national at the same time. And so it's it's pretty clear to me that the Soviets are taking that almost two decades of um, Soviet nationality policy and education nationality policy and how they blend and looking at these these um 3,000 or so children and say, okay, how do we make sense of them? Well, let them be national in form, right? So Bosque or Catalonian or whatever, um, but Spanish in content and Soviet in content at the same time. So there's the different layers of national and supranational identity that are being encouraged. Um, and in some, some cases, I, even being enforced, for example, with, with language. It's not, um, it's not optional, that you learn Spanish along with your Russian. It is mandatory.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that's a, it's a great point, Carl. I was trying to think of how I would frame conceptually the issue of assimilation or double assimilation or multiple homelands. And and I think your story really compli- complicates that. Um, I, I have to ask this question and I'm, and I'm really begging, begging this one. Is, is, Spaniardness or Hispanidad, or as you call it later on, and it's almost like a Che Guevara thing, this Hispano-Sovietness, is that the creation of a model minority? I mean, I'm trying to draw comparisons because you point out rightly in your book that the USSR is not the only country to take in Spanish child refugees, right? There are other countries in Europe that do this. And and of course, um, in, in Latin America as well, Central and South America. So, you know, how, how does this process of assimilation or the structuring, the framing of, of multiple homelands work based on your, your source evidence, what, what you found?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, good questions there. Um, so, the, let's, let's talk about the process first. So they're definitely trying to create, and it's, it's, it's mentioned time and time again, not only in the archival sources, but also in the pedagogical sources, um, pedagogical journals in particular, that they're trying to create a love for two homelands. So that's the Soviet and uh, the Spanish homeland. Um, how they do it is largely through um, the social sciences and humanities in the classroom. So in uh, history classes or, or historians, so obviously it's the most important of disciplines, um, you see a very standard um, Soviet history text where you're looking at at heroes of the past. So um, Alexander Nevsky and Dmitry Donskoy, you know, overcoming great odds and valor and whatnot. And then they have to go searching for uh, a Spanish analog. And that becomes a bit harder and so they reached into the deep past. So you know, Iberian people rising up against Hannibal, right in the third wow. century BC, and Seguntum uh, and Viriatus. Um, but it's the same notion that it's, it's it's common people sometimes led by a single leader. This is probably important in the Spanish, in the Soviet sense, uh, but everyday people rising up against against um, unbelievable odds. And becoming victorious. So that helps them to, to see these two homelands um, doing some of the same things. This is also important, I think, in the, as they frame both the Spanish Civil War, but also the Second World War, because these are both wars against great odds. And, of course, the, the, the rhetoric in the, in the Soviet Union, you know, it's going to be the people led by the party, but the people who have to rise up and make these great sacrifices. So that is one way in which the the Spanish and the Soviet are are blended is this focus, particularly in the social sciences on on heroism and patriotism. And then in things like literature classes, showing that both cultures have a great history. Um, so we know the, the Soviet canon, right? You you have to know your Tolstoy and your Pushkin and whatnot. Uh, classic, yeah, classic. Um, but also the the socialist realist writers of the day who are who are mandatory. It becomes a little bit harder in the Spanish literature classes, one because they lack uh, they lack the books in the Soviet Union, especially initially. Um, but you also don't have a socialist realist canon that you can draw on. So they really preference the Golden Age. So it's uh, Cervantes and Lope de Vega in particular. And then they bring in some other Western writers who are seen as being kind of uh, good socialist realist models. Like Jack London is one that, that every child is reading, whether they're they're Soviet or Spanish.
0: Yeah. Or dos so pas, pasos, probably. Yeah, yeah
1: exactly. And mm-hmm. so they're trying to to create, in, in a sense, a, a common language, a common cultural language, a common set of references uh, amongst the Spaniards. But also between the Spaniards and their Soviet counterparts. So as they emerge from these boarding schools, um, they do have that model childhood, right? They they know they can speak about Pushkin, they can speak about Dmitry Donskoy, they can they can have conversations with their counterparts outside of the schools, even when they're in schools, because you know they're going to to sporting events and things like that, and pioneer camps, and so they're they're seeing. Uh, Russian and Soviet children, uh, even though they're not living and studying with them in most cases, so I think they are being um, shown as a as model children, and this is done quite early. There is a uh, a writer named Elena Koneninko who writes a book called Little Spaniards, Malinki um, Ispanci, about the first uh, flotilla of children that arrive, um, and actually they arrive in uh, Artek at the, the Soviet pioneer camp in Crimea on the Black Sea. And it's quite clear in the in this book, and this is the only book that's written during their, their period about them, um, even though they're their newspaper all the time, this is the only book about them. And she sets them up as the ideal because they are coming to the Soviet Union. They have fled all this trauma. They've left their families behind. Their families are killed. But they're not crying because of that. They're crying because of happiness, because they've landed in the the land of the Soviet Union. And I'm just thinking, you know, because this is a this is a large print run is going into schools. If I am a, a 10 year old uh, reading about these Spaniards and my father has just been taken. Right. Should yeah. I be crying about that? Right. So I, I think in a lot of ways, um, maybe disingenuously <laughs> in, in this book, um, but in many ways, they're they're. They're being shown as already uh, mastering the ideal type, right, of sacrifice, sacrifice for each other and sacrifice for the state, the regime, um, and kind of grow up really quickly. And this is something yeah. I think where Julie Grafford reads a wonderful book, uh, Sacrificing Childhood, is absolutely, um, absolutely key, right? Once the war starts, this is a different childhood. This isn't the childhood of, you know, thank you, Comrade Stalin. This is a childhood of get in there, do your work, right? Tend the graves, collect the scrap metals, the medicinal herb. Like your childhood in a lot of ways is gone,
0: but that's okay because there is a larger goal uh, in front of us. And what actually happens to the Spaniards who are evacuated multiply during the war? I I remember the details and and your book is, is so focused on the details and I love it of some children who end up in Georgia, for example. I mean, they end up in Tbilisi in, in 19, 1943. So, I mean, imagine the trauma. <laughs> this is, these are orphans and schoolchildren who've lost their parents and have lived in relative privilege. And then they get evacuated again, and, and sometimes again, and, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't really end. Could you talk about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, 1941, you see this in a lot of the oral histories, uh, 1941 was a turning point, right. As, as it is for all Soviet citizens, uh, and most Europeans (laughs) as well. Um, yeah. So the, the children are evacuated, uh, whole schools are evacuated with, uh, a percentage of the adults with them. Uh, many of the adults of course are going to the fronts or into the factory or something like that, contributing to the war effort in that way. Um, these journeys are absolutely horrific. Trains will be sent to a destination and as they're approaching that destination, that destination says we don't want them, right? We're already overrun with refugees who are fleeing to the East away from the front lines. And so time and time again, they're being pushed further and further. And so these journeys sometimes last a month. Um, They're oftentimes without any food. They get to their final destination and the local um, apparatus doesn't want them. They don't have a place to be housed. They don't have a school. In one really tragic case, uh, a lot of them are sent to uh, the Volga because the Volga Germans are being deported as an enemy nation at that point. Uh, the problem is the Spaniards arrive before the Volga German, Germans leave. And the Volga Germans are like hurling rocks and things at them. Like, why are you taking our houses? And these children are just bewildered. They don't know what's going on. In places like Georgia, Um, There are several different stories. Some of these children who were older, 14, 15, 16, um, once the war starts, they immediately go into labor, right? Especially the ones who are not um, very adept at school, let's say. And remember, they they didn't really have much of an education in Spain. So those who came older to the Soviet Union, um, they don't – they're not on a journey towards higher education, right? They didn't have a foundation. So a lot of them go into – into uh, manufacturing and in, in Tbilisi, they're making parachutes and airplanes and things like that. But then we also yeah. have a girl who's adopted by a, a Georgian family, a strange little story. Uh, she's adopted by a Georgian family. Um, they immediately say she cannot speak Spanish anymore. Uh, some other Spaniards arrive and like, who is this girl and why is she not speaking Spanish? And so they kind of find each other uh, very serendipitously Uh, And then another woman, if I remember correct, she's fleeing from Leningrad, and she basically walks most of the way to Georgia across the mountains, being chased by the Germans, but also some rather lascivious Red Army soldiers, uh, and finally arrives in a village. And she's been walking barefoot in the mountains so much that she has rocks embedded in the soles of her feet. Um, Mm You know, starvation, frozen ink, lack of textbooks, uh, you name it, The, the, the privation of these students, um, is striking. Um, but it's also something that they're fairly used to, right they're, They've just emerged from massive privation threats to their lives. And so I had this brief window of 37 to 41, where it looked like they were going to be happy again. And then all of a sudden, June, 1941, their,
0: their childhood collapses again. And I think it's incredibly hard for the whole Stalinist or or Soviet endeavor to actually kind of capitalize on their fame. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but there are some famous people in your your set, right? Um, A lot of the others are forgotten. So, I mean, who would be, let's say the most successful, I hesitate to use that word because it's, it's really a Soviet measure of success, but who are, who are the most renowned of those that you, that you ended up studying?
1: Oh goodness. Um, Well, they have such different, um, different life courses that it's hard to point out, right? Some of them become scientists. Uh, Some of them become, Communist Party members, you're right in the in the Central Committee, uh, things like that. Um, yeah, I think probably the ones that would stand out. And, and, and I should note that the, these children are famous even before they arrive in the Soviet Union, right? So as right. soon as the civil war breaks out in 1936, this is front page news every single day. The war is being talked about uh, in uh, in Pravdy, Vestiya, Pravda, like all of these uh, all of these things. Um, so they're already famous they are they' they're already poster children in that way uh, they're called little heroes this is kind of the, the the phraseology we hear about them but then they disappear from the press really in 1939 at least as a group right they're not they're not in the press on an everyday basis um if I were to pick one person one of these Spaniards who is probably most well known in their adulthood it'd probably be augustine gomez Um, he captained his, uh, boarding house soccer team, but then he went on to, uh, later captain Torpedo, uh, one of Moscow's, uh, elite soccer teams as well. And, you know, both, both countries are wild about their soccer. And so, (laughs) of course, yeah. So he would be talked about, uh, in the press, certainly during the season in a way that no other, uh, no other Spaniards would be. Um, but they're, they're all over the place. They become, they become Soviet citizens. And so they're, they're, they're artists, they're, they're athletes, they're politicians, they're Um, You know, they're, they're winning the the labor medals and things just like every other, uh, every other Soviet uh, Soviet citizen is.
0: Um, yeah. So they're really,
1: and, they're really all over the place.
0: And and toward, toward the end, you, um, I think in your last chapter and your conclusion, you mentioned the work of uh, Glenis Young, which I think is really important, but also the, um, your category of hispano-soviets who then get repatriated um, but also have to wait so you know where are they repatriated and and what is the fate of these i think like one thousand nine hundred people um what, what what happens to them in the end
1: yeah so here's kind of another serendipitous moment i remember at acs years and years ago i just started doing this research and and uh lisa kirschenbaum comes up to me and says carl do you know that Glennis Young is working on these too? I was like, Oh no, she can't be. <laughs> she can't be. And so, you know, Lisa knew both of us and we knew, we knew each other, but we hadn't kind of connected the dots of our new projects. And so uh, Glennis and I sat down and I said, look, I'm interested in education. She's like, Oh, I'm interested in adults. And so we kind of drew this line in the sand. Like, this, is, <laughs> this is where our emphases are going to be. So uh, she's had a couple of uh, short pieces out so far, and I can't wait to see her, her full work on the adults. Um, so, uh
0: repatriation so what are, what
1: is, yeah so what is their what is their fate so um the repatriation is different in a lot of places so um these children go to lots of places right they go to to britain to belgium to france to mexico um the soviet union is the only one where the state pays for everything mexico does but it's only for a couple years uh, for all the other places they're basically kicked out in 1939 uh, some are allowed to stay behind. Some in Belgium, for example, had been uh, had been adopted. There's a couple that, that linger in the UK, but most of them are kicked out and sent back to to Spain. The Soviets don't feel that they can do that because these are children and leftists who've been living in the capital of communism. If they go back to Franco's Spain, they will be arrested, humiliated, tortured, maybe even killed. And so we see very few moving back before the mid-1950s. Some do go back at the end of the war. Some will go back to other countries to join their parents in, in uh, Mexico, Argentina, France, what have you. But en masse, our first large group doesn't go back into the mid-1950s. And the, the, the reason uh, for this, I think, and, and Glennis will tell us more because she's digging into this a lot more than I, than I have, um, this is when the United States starts making overtures to Franco right? Because we want a military base in Spain. We're advocating mm-hmm. for Spain's yes. inclusion in the United Nations. So I think this is a geopolitical move. Um, the Soviet Union doesn't want to have another issue like Israel in 48, where they think they're going to have an ally, and then all of a sudden, oops, they go it's to the other point. side in the Cold War. So this is a way of trying to to um, rebuild that relationship. Even in, in Stalin's uh, later years, he's already making diplomatic overtures to Spain, trying to figure out what what might be done. And then in 55, 56, we have uh, the first large numbers go back to Spain, but this is not a Spain they remember, Um, especially for the girls. The girls have been in a country where there is um, at least lip service to equality, right? We know that their education is gendered and all that kind of stuff, but it's not the patriarchal misogynist Catholic uh Francoist Spain that they're returning to, where you're supposed to be uh getting pregnant and cooking for your husband, right? You don't have opportunities in Spain right. the way you yeah. do in the Soviet Union. So yeah, those yeah. girls now women are are um they're lost. They're lost in their, their first homeland. For yeah. the men who also may be highly skilled, uh great uh higher educations, they go back and they're laborers. Because all of them are suspect, but simply because they're coming from the Soviet Union, they're suspect. They're given a special um, identification card that's a different color from other Spaniards, so they can be identified very quickly. They're surveilled, harassed, arrested. Um, Some of them don't understand how backwards Spain is. Right? There's a wonderful one where um, as they're repatriating to to Spain, they start bringing all these material goods that they've amassed in the Soviet Union, including television. But there isn't a television channel yet in Spain, <laughs> They're bringing right. refrigerators and cars. And so their Spanish families and neighbors are looking at, like, who are these people that they can afford a car or refrigerator or television? And so there's a lot of deep suspicion. So a number of these, a large number of these turn around quite quickly and return to the Soviet Union because they realize that's their real homeland. Right. They yeah. spent much more time in the Soviet Union than they ever did in, in Spain. And so that's where they actually belong and they feel most comfortable.
0: And my final question for you, Carl, since I've I've been um, all didactic and pedagogical and dictating every single question for you uh, is, is really a a sort of free open-ended question. What what for our listeners would be the takeaway point of your book? And, and finally, what are you working on now? What are you interested in?
1: So um, takeaways, um, I guess a couple. One, I would really like to see us, like, like you did in Map Men. like, let's do something new. All right, let's not continue to to tread down the path that's been well trodden. Let's find some new projects, right? Sure, the archives have been open since, since 1991, but there's treasure troves of new material. I love reading this stuff coming out about the, the 60s and the 70s. Um, that we really hadn't been writing about in any significant way. Let's turn our attentions to more of these untold stories and see what they can tell us. Um, I think by doing so, we can get new windows into the Soviet experience. In my case, you know, the the Stalin period. I, I came away with very different notions of what Soviet education meant. Like, what is a Soviet education versus just a modern education of disciplining the body, Disciplining children's time, making them stand in line, obey authority, those kind of things. And what is truly Soviet? And we can only ask those questions. Um, we, it's, I think it's more helpful when we ask those questions of new, um, new studies, new research. Uh, I, I think that I came away with this with a better understanding of the Soviet's deep commitment to internationalism, even after socialism in one country has been announced. There's still a deep concern for an international outlook for Soviet citizens, but also bringing the international to the, uh, to the Soviet Union, in this case, uh, a highly privileged uh, group of, of Spaniards. Um, so I, I think it's kind of layers of complexity uh, that I hope people uh, walk away from this, uh, this book with, and hopefully a, a, an urge to do more transnational projects to kind of enlighten what's going on. The thing that, are, that uh, I only came to as I was completing the manuscript a year or two ago was um, it's odd that when looking at Stalin's treatment of refugees, right, of providing education and health care and jobs and dignity, we can see how to properly treat refugees rather than locking them in cages, right i it it just struck me one day probably when we saw one of these these border children in the united states being stuck in a cage that wow even stalin right as long as you were a privileged group like these spaniards were and not kind of from an enemy <laughs> people um you can have a really good life and a, a life that's privileged much more than than um other soviet citizens even so I, those are some of the takeaways that that i hope people get out of the book if i if i did it right <laughs> then, <laughs> then they'll get that um as far as new projects, uh, I'm not really sure what it's going to be. I'm doing a lot of reading. Um, I want to. I'm moving from um, kind of a narrow focused Soviet story with the Sevastopol book into one that's a little bit more uh, transnational, to one that I want to be much more transnational. So it's it's probably going to be a book on uh, interwar Europe. Uh, this is my favorite thing to teach. I love interwar Europe. I teach a course on it, plus uh, one on Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, and I throw in FDR there for a, a comparison. And I want to write something, I think, for a bit more of a general audience about modern state practices more generally, right? My students will tell you in almost every one of my courses, certainly my modern courses, uh, I start with a piece by uh, by David Hoffman, where he talks about his definition of what modern state practice is. Um, and I, so I think that's what the the new book is going to be. I don't know exactly. Um, what shape it's going to to take because i'm just just now beginning to to work on that but i'm not going to teach myself any new languages i hope
0: Not Hungarian. Not (laughs) Hungarian. No, I tried that (laughs) one.
1: Actually, I tried Estonian. So another finno Ugric.
0: I tried Estonian one time. I was like, no, that's not going to (laughs) work. Especially as old as as I am, the languages don't come as easily as they used to. I eagerly await your next monograph on 20th century interwar Basque history. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, that's the thing. I I was going
1: to to teach myself Basque, and then I, I started it, and then I quickly gave up. Um, because it was, <laughs> it was just, it was just not coming, it, and yeah. Um, so well, some, maybe some, somebody will jump off from this, uh, and someone who has Baskin and, and do some more work on it.
0: Well, thank you, Carl, for joining us. You've been listening to uh, the New Books Network podcast. This is New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast ch- podcast channel on the New Books Network. We've been speaking with Professor Carl Qualls, who is the author of Stalin's Ninos, Educating Spanish Civil War Refugee Children in the Soviet Union, 1937 to 1951, just out 2020 with the University of Chicago Press. Uh, excuse me, the University of Toronto Press, Toronto. You're Chicago. <laughs> University of Toronto Press. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. Thanks, Carl, for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Stephen.